0: Well, again, as we come to the end of our uh, the letter of 1 Peter this morning, it's been a year uh, traveling through this book, taking um, uh, an intermission in the summer, going through the Psalms. But we come now to the conclusion here in chapter 5. We'll be in verses 6 through 14 this morning. Chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. These are really Peter's final instructions to the people that he was writing this letter And we we remember who he wrote this letter to at the very beginning of 1 Peter's. He was writing it to elect exiles, to those chosen by God, living as exiles, scattered throughout churches in Asia Minor, writing to a number of small churches, new churches in the first century, and those that were beginning during this time to receive some level of persecution for their choice to follow Jesus, for their faith. That they were, in the truest sense, exiles and strangers. And Peter's writing to them to encourage them, to help them see this is the reality of what it means to be a Christian. You're walking the right path. Suffering and persecution for your faith does not mean you are outside of the path of Jesus. It means you're directly behind the path of Jesus. It was His path. You're following in His steps. Continue to do it because suffering won't last forever. There is this hope that you have, this living hope in front of you, that this suffering will one day be swallowed by God's glory, by this, this, uh, this inheritance that's being kept in heaven for you. So keep going. Live good and beautiful lives here so that the world may see your good works and glorify God in heaven. But continue to follow in the steps of Jesus. This is Peter's letter that he's writing, and we come now to these final words here as he wraps this letter up. In a lot of ways, this feels like Peter's just going, okay, what else do I need to say? Let me just put it all together. It's like a good stew. You just take whatever's in the fridge, you throw it in a pot, and you just make it this kind of last meal that you have. All the ingredients work together. That's what it feels like Peter does here in some ways here in 6 through 14 as he begins to go, okay, here's a number of things I haven't said yet I want to say. Let me put it all together for this final stew uh, here this morning in chapter 5. Verses six through fourteen. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole um, the whole section, and then we will dive in. First Peter five, verses six through fourteen. Peter writes this: Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that He may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your cares on Him, because He cares about you. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Now, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered a little while. To him, be dominion forever. Amen. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, as we come to this section, there's three different things I want us to look at as we walk through here. We're going to see three things. First, we're going to look at these final exhortations in verses 6 through 9. There's three exhortations that Peter gives there in those verses, the final exhortations in 6 through 9. Second, we'll see the summary. Peter really summarizes the whole of the letter in these two verses, 10 through 11. And in some ways concludes until we get his PS, the postscript, There in verses 12 through 14, a few final thoughts after the conclusion of the letter. So the final exhortations, the summary, and the postscript. That's what we'll be walking through this morning. So first, the final exhortations. Peter's writing again to Christians experiencing persecution for their faith, and I'm sure in some ways wondering, are we going to make it? Am I doing anything wrong? Is this church going to last Looking around at the Greco-Roman Empire and the small little house these house churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, I'm sure these churches were wondering, are we going to make it? Is this thing going to last? Peter is writing to them in that moment. And so concluding here with these final exhortations, he's trying to help them. And he begins first um, here in verse 6 with this exhortation to humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. This is connected to the previous verses, uh, verses four and five we saw last week as Peter was writing that we are to clothe ourselves with humility with one another. Where does that humility comes from? Uh, You can't just decide to be more humble. Uh, Maybe you can, I can't. Uh, Just pull up your bootstraps and like, here we go, tomorrow I'm just going to be more humble. So how then does God cultivate humility in us? How can we be humble toward one another? How can we clothe ourselves with humility? Peter tells us here in verse 6, we are to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This is an image, this mighty hand of God is an image from the Old Testament that was used to describe the way in which God redeemed Israel from Egypt. He redeemed them with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. And Peter's pulling on that image to show God is still at work in the lives of his people. And there are times when that mighty hand in his redemption brings, as we've seen here at the end of his letter in chapters 4 and 5, there are times that he allows things into our life, suffering, persecution, as a means of purifying us, going through a fire, Peter describes, as we're like gold, our faith is refined. God allows things he hates in order to accomplish what he loves, so Johnny Erickson Tata uh, writes. It's really the, the tagline of her whole ministry. God allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. His, under his mighty hand, there are times in which judgment, suffering, or persecution enters into our lives. How will we respond to that? Will we pull back against it, fighting against it, trying to find lives of ease and comfort in this life? Or will we respond in humility humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, trusting that that hand is not only mighty, but that it's loving, that it's a Father's hand, that He is using it all for our good and for His glory. We may not understand it. My friends, mostly we probably won't understand it. But we can trust Him. Do we know His character as we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? This is the purpose, to humble ourselves. Because What we see here is either we will humble ourselves And then what happens? God then will exalt us at the proper time. That humility, that laying low won't last forever. This is the, again, Peter's been writing this throughout his letter. Suffering leads to glory. Humility leads to exaltation. How do we know that? Because this was the life of Jesus. His death before his resurrection. His humiliation before his exaltation. And we follow in his steps. If we humble ourselves now, there is an exaltation coming in the future. Oh, but friends, if we exalt ourselves now, then God will be the one to humble us. And so, we then, how do we respond to this mighty hand in our lives and humbling ourselves? Right? The purpose of that humbling is that He may exalt us. But what does it look like to humble ourselves? Here's an interesting point here in verse seven as Peter says, casting all your cares on Him. It may feel disconnected from humility, but it's the same thought, it's the same sentence. That word there, casting, it's not a brand new verb and a new thought. It's connected to humility. Peter's saying one of the ways in which you humble yourselves is by casting your cares on God, casting your anxieties on Him. If you put a little word there in verse 7, if you add the word by, it helps, I think, understand what the meaning of this verse is. Humble yourselves by casting your cares on Him. It's a participle. It's not a new imperative verb. Casting your cares on Him. How are those things connected? Or is there ways in which we can respond to the circumstances in our life? Difficulties in our life? Hopes and dreams that we may have? We can respond in one way by going, okay, I'm going to take this under my control. I'm going to do this on my own strength, my own chutzpah, if you will. I'm gonna be able to figure this out. Let me get it all underneath me and I'm gonna make my life and try to manage my life in a way to reach my desired outcomes. Let me take control of my life. And if that becomes our posture, let me tell you what will start to happen. Worry and anxiety will begin to rise because we can't keep it all together. And that is an expression, not of humility, but of pride going, I can control my life. That kind of response, friends, is functional atheism. Living as though God does not exist, I'm going to take control of my life. It's a prideful posture that claims control and will breed a certain type of worry and anxiety um, in our lives. And Peter says, no, 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 don't respond that way. Humble yourselves. Don't take control of your life and your own cares and your own anxieties. Cast them on God. It's an expression that says, I can't do this. I need help. Let me throw my cares at the cross. Let me cast my cares on him. It's an expression of humility. I think that that pride is one of the things that can lead to a prayerlessness in our lives. This pride that is in some ways this claim of self-sufficiency. I've got it. I can do this. I don't need help. And so we don't ask for it. That pride leads to prayerlessness. And Peter says, no, 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 humble yourselves. And when you do that, it will then lead to this casting of your cares, this prayer, this extension of prayer on God. Over oh, friends, pride isn't the only thing I think that leads to prayerlessness. I think another thing that leads to prayerlessness is not just maybe an over, uh, a high view of ourselves, but I think it's a warped view of God also can lead to prayerlessness. Maybe we have a wrong view of who he is in our relationship to him. Maybe the problem is that you think of yourself too highly is that you don't think rightly of who God is. Maybe you read verses like in Isaiah 6 where God is high and lifted up. He's seated on a throne the robe of his, uh, of, uh, the train of his robe fills the temple. There's smoke everywhere. Angels are singing. Foundations are shaking. Uh, Isaiah is terrified. And you're like, oh, I can understand that picture of God. This holy, holy, holy God that is removed and other from me, that I tremble in his presence and I cannot draw near because he's so holy. He's so different. He's so other. How can I approach him because of who I am? Maybe your prayerlessness is, in fact, that's a warped view of who God is. And maybe you say, Caleb, how is that a warped view? That's Isaiah 6. That's who God is. For that's absolutely who God is, but it is not all of who God is to his people. And if we stop there, it may lead to prayerlessness as we believe there is this gap between us and God. I don't want to go to him because how could I approach him? Or maybe you just see him as a creator, as the one who's holding the universes together. And you go, listen, I believe he's got all this power. I believe by the word of his might, he's spinning planets right now. There's no way that he's concerned about the details of my life. There's just no way. I'm stressed about kids or retirement or caring for aging parents or uh, my own health ailments. There's just all these things I'm worried about. He's got got too many busy things going on. I'm not going to bother him. And so maybe that leads to prayerlessness. Now friends, whatever it might be, we've got to understand who God is. And Peter gets to the heart of it here in verse 7. As he says, we are to cast all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares about you. If you are an underliner, highlighter, boxer, asterisk, drawer or whatever it is, If if you draw pictures in the margin, whatever it is, whatever you do in your Bible, if you do that do it here God cares about you I think that often in church we can get to the point of understanding God as creator we can get to the point of understanding God as holy I think a lot of us struggle to believe that God cares about me for whatever reason Maybe it's because of your past. Maybe it's because you have this view of him, again, as Isaiah 6. He's holy. He's isn't. How can I approach him? Whatever it might be, I think we have a hard time getting there. And at the heart of all of this is our relationship to him. And it's through the Bible we see the extension of his care in our relationship to his people. For all those who've trusted in him, it says in the Bible that we are adopted into his family. That we're now children That's our relationship to God now. It's fundamentally different. He hasn't changed. Our relationship to Him has changed. Uh, J.I. Packer, author, theologian, summed up this way. He said, Father is the Christian name for God. That's what we call Him. It's not only what we call Him, but it's the fundamental understanding of our relationship to Him. Think about all of Jesus' prayers if you've grown up in church, you've read Jesus' prayers, you maybe gloss over this, but friends, I think it's so profound that Jesus begins all of his prayers the same way. Well, let me tell you what he doesn't say Our judge, our creator, our king. All those are true things of who God is. But that's not how he begins his prayers. How does Jesus begin his prayers as he approaches the Father? Our Father. That's the lens in which he sees his relationship. God the Son, God the Father, and all those then who trusted in Jesus are now one with him. And that's now our relationship as well. We've been adopted into his family. He now cares for us. He looks at us like a father looks on his kids. And he cares about us. This is, again, this isn't just a New Testament thing. This is the Old Testament. Psalm 103, 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Oh, friends, this is our relationship to God. We've been adopted into his family. We cannot think about this enough. Again, in his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer talks about adoption. And he talks about it this way. I think this is beautiful. It says, adoption... He believes adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. That's quite a claim. Some of you I can see fidgeting in your seat, going, Well, I don't know, justification. Justification is the highest blessing. It is the thing in which we are justified. Our sin is removed. Our guilt is covered. Our our payment has been paid for once and for all. We are then declared not only not guilty, but declared righteous in the sight of God. No, J.I. Packer and Caleb, justification is the highest privilege. Well, J.I. Packer answers that. Here's the rest of his quote. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. Justification. That justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, all together with his acceptance for the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. That's not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is far greater. Oh, friends, I think he's right. In justification, certainly, we are declared righteous in the holy court of God's law. But adoption moves us from a courtroom and into a living room as we draw near to our Father. This is the goal of the cross, to draw us near, right? We saw this earlier in 1 Peter. As He said, it's in 1 Peter three eighteen. Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, Why? So that he might bring you to God. Drawing us near to God was the goal of the cross, to bring us to him. How near can we draw? You can draw as near as a child does to their father. Yesterday, I was talking to my seven-year-old daughter at the end of the day, and she climbed up into my lap, held her in my arms, and we just started talking about the details of the day. And she remembers every detail of the day. As she's going through, she's asking me how my day was. We're talking back and forth. And she's telling me about all the things that she was stressed about, all the things she was concerned about, all the things that had happened that day. And for instance, there's a certain nearness and relationship that I have to my child that's different than any other. I love all of you, but if you crawled in my lap and started telling me about your day, it's going to get weird. <laughs> that's not the relationship I have with you. It is the relationship I have with my child. And God is saying that is now fundamentally, it's a picture, imperfect, but it's a picture of the relationship that he now has with you. You are his son, you are his daughter, and he cares about you. So draw near to him. Isaiah 6 is true. He is on that throne. He is high and lifted up. He is holy. Oh, but friends, Hebrews 4 is also true. That because of our great high priest, we can now boldly draw near to that throne. We can run not to our judge, but to our dad. And we can find grace and comfort and mercy in our time of need. Oh, friends, our prayerlessness may be a result of that we don't have a full view of who God is. An improper view of who God is. He is holy. Oh, but friends, in Christ, he is now our father. He cares about you. This is what we see in the ways in which we can draw near to him. To humble yourselves by casting your cares on him because he cares about you. Second exhortation that Peter gives is that we are to be alert. Verse 8, be alert, be sober-minded. He's talked about this a little already in regards to prayer. We're to be alert, sober-minded. Don't fall asleep three times like he did in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus asked him to pray. Be alert, be sober-minded, be focused, don't get caught up in stupor or in frenzy or kind of this, the craziness of this world. Don't get distracted or numbed or groggy or sleepy. But be alert. Why? Why should we be alert? He says, here's the reason why. Because you've got an enemy. And that enemy is real. That enemy, the devil, is roaring, prowling around like a roaring lion. And he wants to devour anyone that he can. I think, uh, I think that different traditions, different denominations have their different strengths. None, nobody's perfect. This church is not perfect. Uh, we've got, again, our, our own weaknesses. It, we want all one day, every single one of God's people, when we get to heaven, we'll sit around Jesus and he will look at us and he will go, Guys, you were all wrong. Some of you were more wrong than others, but you were all wrong. And I, I, as I look at different traditions, I think at different denominations, I think there are different ways in which we do things better than others. I think one of the weaknesses I sense in, sometimes in our tradition, maybe our uh, family of churches, one of the things that we might have a tendency to do is to devalue or to dismiss or, or to not see the reality of the spiritual realm. There is a very real spiritual war happening. There is a very real enemy whose goal is to destroy you. He is prowling around like a roaring lion. and That should cause us then to be alert. Peter here is saying that this persecution that they're receiving, part of that is in turn not just because of the hostility of this world, but it's because there's an enemy who's trying to destroy you. That is his hope. And so whatever it might be, responding in evil, giving yourselves over to pleasures in this world... Uh, what, whatever it might be, trying to find your identity, your, uh, your, your value, your worth, and family, and money, and your job, and power, trying to look for anything in this world to satisfy you, neglecting God, giving yourself over to sin, that is the enemy's goal. And listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you're like, here they're talking about the uh, Satan stuff again. Just weird. I don't get it. And I understand. I understand the, the maybe you come with a, a, a sense of kind of a reasonableness or a, 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 an ability to be able to only evaluate what you can see. But listen, let me just, let me just put this out to you. Here's my challenge to you. This morning, th- this morning, you may hear God's grace drawing you to himself. And you may come today and go, I don't have all the answers, but I want to follow him. I think he really is the king. I, I don't know everything, but, but I want to follow him today. That may be you today, but it may not be. You may walk right back out the doors and go, man, this stuff is just ridiculous. I'm going to keep just doing whatever I want to do in this world. And I want you to remember this. If you walk out this door with that mindset, that there will be a day when whatever it is you're trying to find that happiness in, that value, that worth, that satisfaction in, it's pleasure, it's friendships, money, family, whatever, there's going to come a day where that stuff will fail you and you will reach the end of yourself. On that day, I want you to remember this day. And I want you to remember the invitation of Jesus as he looks to those who are hurting. And will be talking to you in that moment. And his invitation is this, to come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you who've been let down by the things in this world, all of you that have experienced the brokenness of this reality, of this damaged creation, come to me. And your soul will find rest. That's his invitation. Don't forget that on that day. Because what I can tell you from a a worldview of the one who created the world. Those things that are offering you pleasure and satisfaction are seeking to destroy you. And one day they will. One day they will devour you. This is his goal. And Christian, if you're here and you're a Christian, we need to be aware of this reality. There is an enemy a Satan, it literally means adversary. Devil, the word used here, means slanderer or accuser. The word enemy that, that Peter uses, devil, the, your adversary, your enemy, the devil. It's the only time that that word is used here in the New Testament to describe Satan. But he is just that, an enemy, an adversary, a slanderer, an accuser. He is seeking to devour you. But friends, we need to remember that verse is not meant to strike fear into our hearts going, oh my goodness, what a strong enemy we face. This is a battle between good and evil. Let's see who's going to win. This isn't like watching the Lord of the Rings and you're watching with hope against hope as Frodo goes towards Mount Doom with the ring, wondering, is good going to overcome evil? Evil seems so powerful. Sauron, like a roaring lion, is he going to win? What's going to happen? Friends, that's not the picture painted here in verse 8. This verse is not meant to instill fear in our hearts. Because while it is true our enemy is a roaring lion... That should cause us to be alert. We rest in the fact that we have been hidden in a greater lion. One that is the lion of Judah who has conquered this one. And so his roar is not one to instill fear in our hearts. Satan's roar of this lion is not one to instill fear. But it is one of a panicked and crazed anger of a defeated enemy. That is his roar. It's meant to alert you. You don't have to fear the power of this lion. This is not a battle against good and evil. We'll just keep our fingers crossed to see how the story ends. Friends, we know how the story ends. The king wins. The enemy is vanquished. And we live with him forever. And as we fight the battle now, oh friends, let this reality settle deeply into your hearts. It is a battle that he's already won. This is what Peter is saying, to be alert here of this reality. The final exhortation in verse 9, that we're not only to be alert, but when we encounter then our adversary, we are to resist him. Resist him. That we are to do it firm in the faith, knowing the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Peter's encouraging them, telling them, resist them. As that adversary comes, as the accusation comes, as the temptation comes, resist him. Stand firm, then, in your faith, and your trust in God, that what God has said is true, not what the accuser is saying, not what the slanderer is saying. That's just, it's his tactic. It's what he's done from the very beginning, in the garden with Adam and Eve. He came, and what was his question? He did not try to tempt them by how delicious the fruit looked. He didn't come and say, look, let me crack this open. Look how juicy it is, Eve. This is awesome. You've never had any apple like this. Or fruit. We don't know if it's an apple. Fruit. Yeah, I've never had any fruit like this. That wasn't his tactic. What was his tactic? Did God really say? He didn't focus on the fruit. He tried to confuse their character of who God was. Oh, no, 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 no. God didn't say that. You see, really, Eve? He just doesn't want you to be like him. That's the problem. You eat this, you'll know good and evil. You'll be like him. That's what he doesn't want. And he instilled this doubt in their hearts. Adam and Eve no longer trusted God. They didn't stand firm in their faith. They believed the deceiver and they gave into it. Friends, stand firm in your faith. Faith, trust, thats synonyms. That we trust in God, his character, what he has said as these things come our way. That's how we resist him. as We stand firm in his faith. And the encouragement that Peter writes here in verse 9. That we're not the only ones going through this. Particularly here in verse 9, again, the, the, the enemy was coming through the persecution of a hostile world. Peter was going, guys, you're not the only ones here going through this. Brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing the same thing. And I don't know if you've experienced that this month. The month of November has been a month to pray for the international persecuted church. We've talked about it some, we've been praying through it at church, We've been resources we've been, been highlighting. I don't know about you, but when I hear stories of brothers and sisters around the world that stand firm in their faith in the midst of hostility, it does something to my own trust in God. Well, it stirs something in my soul, puts some steel in my backbone, and it firms up my faith. I think that's what Peter's doing here, going, there are people around the world going through the same thing. You're not alone. There's a persecuted church because and a suffering church because we follow a suffering Savior. This is the reality, to resist him. Those are the three exhortations that Peter gives here to this church at the end of his letter. But he turns now in verses 10 and 11 to give a summary of the letter, to summarize the letter as a whole here in verses 10 through 11. He's really just highlighting five things uh, here that he wants them to understand. First, he wants them to know that God is the god of all grace as a beautiful name for who god is the god of all grace the god of every grace this unmerited favor this this blessing that he's given that was not earned this gift that he gives every grace that we experience in this life from anything it flows out of him who is the fount of every blessing, the fount of all grace, the God of every grace. It rests and resides in him. That is who he is. He is the God of all grace. Not only is he the God of all grace, but this God has called you to his glory and that glory never ends. He has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That he has then invited you into, saved you, picked you up and transferred you from this darkness, kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light of his beloved son. Into this glory that will know no end, that will never fade and never dim. It is an eternal glory that he has called and pulled you and taken you into. Not only has he called you into this glory, but he will keep you in that glory. Right? With his own hands, he will restore, he will establish, he will strengthen, and he will support. I love, I love that, as Peter writes, again, to struggling Christians, persecuted Christians. He says, listen, not only is the God the one who called you, he's the one that's going to keep you. He himself... He's highlighting it, bolding it. He himself, God is the one. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. He will restore you. He will support you. God will do that work in you. Oh, friend! so if you walk in broken this morning, for whatever it might be, God has promised to restore what is broken. If you walk in unsteady, uncertain by whatever might be around you in this life. Oh, friends, his promise is to establish you. If you walk in weak, feeling like you can't take another step forward, you can't do this thing called the Christian life, he has promised to strengthen you. Or maybe you just feel like you're always a second from falling over. I can't stand on my own. Oh, you're right, but he has promised to support you. Well, friends, he is the one working, not just to call us, but to keep us. Peter also reminds us, as he has throughout his letter, that this is the work God is doing. But understand, in this life, there is suffering. The path to that glory that's eternal is a path of suffering. It is death before life, suffering before glory, humility before exaltation. This is the economy of God's kingdom. It's the path of Jesus, and it's the path of every single one of his followers. But I want you to notice that word there. You have suffered a little while. All of your suffering has an expiration date on it. His glory does not. All of your pain will one day end. His kingdom will not. One day he will take his hand and wipe away your last tear. Oh, but your joy will ever increase as you are caught up in the joy of the Lord. Friends, this suffering is a reality, but it is a little while. And this is where he ends in verse 7. Excuse me, in verse 11. That God's rule will never end. To him be dominion forever. To him be the power forever. To him, may his kingdom extend forever. Amen. I want you to think about how those words would land on a small church receiving hostility for their faith in the midst of the Greco-Roman Empire. The greatest empire the world had ever seen up until that point. Peter writes to this group. I don't know how many there were. 10, 20, 50. Not many. And he says, this God of grace that's called you to his glory. I want you to look around at the kingdom in Rome this kingdom won't last but his dominion will be forever it will last and endure forever what incredible comfort to those who are struggling it reminds me of the prophecy in isaiah 9 one of the famous christmas verses in the book of isaiah and listen, we're all here together now. Thanksgiving was last week. We're all now unified again in the hope of the gospel. It's time to celebrate Christmas. We're all, we're all here together. No more judgment. There's freedom of conscience and Christian liberty about when you set up the tree. We're not to judge one another, to look down on one another. Uh, we are one, unified. But now we're all together. Here it is. We can now celebrate Christmas. And in Isaiah 9, we have this great promise of God who's writing to those who are in the middle of darkness, Right, to to those who are suffering, to those who are persecuted, to those who can't see where they're going. Right, this is how Isaiah 9 begins in verse 1 or in verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. He's writing to those who are hurting. And what is the light that they have seen? It's this promise, this promise that was given to them. Because they're in the middle of darkness. They're in the middle of persecution. They're in the middle of hostility. They're in the middle of sorrow. They're in the middle of what feels like hopelessness. And going, what is going on with this promise of God? It's been 400 years since we've heard from him. Has his promise been been made null and void? And God says, no, those people walking in darkness will see a great light. And what is God's great light then to that world of darkness? to that world of hostility, to that world of oppression to his people? Is it going to be some general walking, strutting across the battlefield to overtake the empire and bring back Israel to its great heights? No, the person that God brings to those in darkness was a baby. It's that first Christmas. That's the light of the world that has come. And through that child, verse 4 in Isaiah 9, he shatters their oppressive yoke. And on the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor. Continues on, verse 6, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And his dominion will be vast. And its peace will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. This child who was born 2,000 years ago brought with him, ushered with him this kingdom and this dominion that will last forever and ever regardless of the hostility of this world. And so we trust him as strangers and exiles now living to expand that kingdom. Not a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom through the power, not of sword, but of the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Seeing that kingdom expanded as we follow the suffering servant, knowing that one day he will return in glory and that kingdom, which is hoped for, will be realized. And that kingdom, that dominion will be vast. Vast. It will be ever increasing, and his peace will never end. Ray Ortland, a pastor, writes about that verse this way. I love this. Talking about verse seven, he says, That's the best part of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The empire of grace will forever expand. If we live by faith in him now, accepting his weakness as our strength and his folly as our wisdom, we will be there to enjoy his triumph. Forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. There will never come one moment when we will say, oh, this is it, this is the limit. He can't think of anything new. We've seen it all. No, the finite will be, experience ever more wonderfully the infinite and every new moment will be better than the last. It is ever increasing and it will never end. His dominion will be vast, friends, and his dominion is forever and ever. As Peter concludes his letter, he's not wishing or even praying for God's dominion to endure. He's rejoicing in the fact that it will. And this gets us then to the proscript. The P.S. As you, Peter wraps it up with the amen there in verse 11. But now he gets to the P.S., P.S. The final details here to this letter. A few kind of housekeeping things of the person who brought the letter, Silvanus. He was a faithful brother that carried the letter to them. Verse 13, he's speaking uh, in a metaphorical way. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you. He's not talking about an actual woman in the city of Babylon. At this point, Babylon had been laid to waste he was talking metaphorically of that city in the Old Testament that had overtaken Israel, was seen as a metaphor of the enemy of God's people, and then kept the people of Israel in exile. And so Peter's saying that in, in some ways Rome is seen as a, a corollary to Babylon in the Bible. He's saying that there is a church right now in Babylon. There's a church in Rome, fellow elect, fellow exiles, co-exiles with you, and they send their greeting. And so he's talking about as does Mark, my son. This is the same John Mark um, that parted ways with Paul in uh, the book of Acts. Um, it wasn't physically Peter's son, uh, but again, metaphorically, it's someone that Peter had poured into uh, and sees him. You see his affection, his relationship with him. It tells him in verse 14, similar as Paul does, to greet one another with a kiss of love. Culturally, not a man don't feel like if you don't kiss everyone here in church, you're disobeying the word of God. This isn't physically something saying you need to do this. It is an expression of the affection of a family. Saying so that's what the church should be. So whatever that is in a culture, that's how we should greet one another. So holy fist bump, holy high five, uh, holy head nod. Whatever it is for you, it's this expression of warmth and affection. That's what he's writing to. And that there is a real peace that's extended to all those who are in Christ. That's the postscript. But here also, we skipped over it in verse 12. In this postscript, Peter writes the purpose of his letter. And the purpose of his the letter there in verse 12. I've written to you briefly in order to do two things. To encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Those are the two things he's trying to do. These Christians were hurting. Maybe he had questions. He wanted to encourage them with the truth of God's work in their life and the hope of glory to come. He wanted to encourage them. And he also wanted to write to them about the true grace of God. Oh, friends, there's a number of things that implies. I think one of them is the reality that there is a false understanding of God's grace or an incomplete understanding of God's grace. And we should always be striving to see through his word the true grace of God. Not an incomplete picture Not a warped picture, not a false picture, but the true grace of God. That we not only see it, you hear what he writes here in verse 12? It gets the exclamation point in the text. Stand firm in it. Plant your feet on God's grace. That's where you stand, Christian. Not on anything you can do. Not on any of your own goodness or merit or effort or skill or your ability to do something for God. No, on His grace and His grace alone. You are saved by grace through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God so that no one may boast. We don't have any ability to be puffed up because we can't save ourselves. But God in his grace came to save us, came to redeem us, came to call us to his eternal glory in Christ. And it was not because he looked at us and went, you know what? They're pretty impressive. I could use them. I've got a particular set of skills, kind of like Liam Neeson, I think would be good. Good for the kingdom. Yeah, I'm going to choose them. Oh, this other person over here, ah, I don't need them. What can they do? Oh, friends, that's not how God looks at us. In fact, if anything, it's the opposite. Look through the Bible and look at who God chooses. It's those who are weak. It's broken jars. It's disciples who were kind of hapless. It's a country in Israel that was small and unimpressive. It's a shepherd boy that was overlooked by his own dad. I mean, I can just keep going. It's everywhere in the Bible. God chooses those who are weak because they're the ones that know that they need help. So then we don't rob him of his glory, but we go, this is not me. Oh, this is all the glory goes to him. May the light of his gospel shine through me, a broken pot of clay. That's who God uses. May we stand firm in the true grace of God. That's what Peter was writing in this letter, that they would know that. That true grace, it's really the summary of his letter, that that true grace would bring encouragement to these people, and that true grace may bring encouragement to us. What is that grace? Oh friends, that grace is that God in his love has set his affection on you, has set his love on you, and he chose you to be his, adopting you into his family and giving you a new home. By the blood of Jesus, you have now been brought near to God and made into a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. And in that light is an unfading reward and an inheritance that is being kept for you. And while you will experience suffering and persecution in this hostile world, it will one day give way to glory an eternal glory. And that suffering that you experience now shouldn't surprise us because we have a new home and that means that we're strangers here. We're exiles here. We're pilgrims here in a wilderness headed to a promised land. We suffer because we follow a suffering Savior. And as we suffer, we don't respond to evil with evil. But we respond with goodness and submit to every human authority as we strive to live good and beautiful lives so that the world may observe our good works and glorify God. Our suffering and pain is for a little while, but His dominion and His glory lasts forever. And we will make it there into that glory because He will hold us firmly in His nail-scarred hands. And there is no one, not even a roaring lion, our enemy, that can snatch us out of his hands. And so we rest in him and we praise him because his dominion is forever and ever. And we praise the God of all grace. May we stand firm in that grace. And may it encourage us. Let's pray.